0: Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Well, good morning again. So there I was on Friday innocently replacing the cracked screen protector on my iPad when Ben texts me and he says, hey, can you give me a call when you get a chance? Now if your colleague is somebody who actively avoids work-related texts on his day off, let me tell you, always call as soon as possible no matter how much work you think you have to get done because you will want to know as soon as possible how much your weekend just changed. Ben, don't worry, we got this. We're praying for you. So I hope those of you who are working on art are enjoying your colored pencils or your crayons or your paint, because here we go. Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman who lived there came to him pleading, have mercy on me, so, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. What? Well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Now, I've been known to occasionally have a hard time hearing others when my brain gets fixated on a story or an idea or something I'm working on, but not when I'm walking. Certainly not when someone that I have never met comes up to me pleading or actually here in some translations it's shouting. For me to do something. Now, I'm not special at all, mind you. I'm just really bad at ignoring noise. So what's happening here? Jesus and his disciples have left Galilee and they've gone north. Now, Galilee is actually pretty far north in Israel already, but Tyre and Sidon are actually outside of its borders, which is weird thing number one for us because Jesus is a Hebrew and there are rules right, chiefly among them don't associate with Gentiles, meaning people who aren't Jewish. Yet in order to get some respite after this uh, major argument that Jesus has just had with the Pharisees, which, by the way, was all about how Jesus shouldn't do certain kinds of things, Jesus and the disciples now wander outside of Israel, which is where you're most likely to encounter someone who's not a Jew, And it's most certainly in the rule book of the things the Pharisees were arguing about with Jesus. Even when he's resting, he's just a little bit of a rebel. The next weird thing is that there's this Gentile woman, specifically a Canaanite woman, who comes to find Jesus and begins to plead with him very loudly in words that sound very Jewish. Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. Now that is a sentence you do not expect to hear in this time from someone who is not Jewish. Let alone a woman who in this culture at this time is not even supposed to initiate a conversation with men. But it's obvious that the woman is desperate. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. Now that's something we're just going to have to accept because the text offers no other explanation for us. And the demon is tormenting her severely. Regardless of how she's become this way, this woman's daughter is in pain and mom is going to do whatever it takes, including defying cultural and societal norms to interrupt this Jewish holy man and his students. And the holy man ignores her. Now, it's not the first time that Jesus was approached by a non-Jew. It's actually well-established at this point in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is a bit outside the box of this stuff. The Magi, pagan scholars and astrologers, visited his house when he was a toddler. He's healed the servants of a Roman centurion back in chapter 8. See, Gentiles are very much present in Jesus' story already as are women, namely in the genealogy of Jesus at the very first chapter of the book. But it is the first time that Jesus has ignored somebody. Every time before this, and in fact after this event, Jesus answers those who call on him. It seems so out of character Not at all kind or gentle as he was with so many other desperate people. On the one hand, he's defied the traditions of his people by going off into Gentile territory. And then suddenly decides to follow societal conventions when the woman throws herself at his feet. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She is bothering us with all her begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she knelt before him, pleading again, and said, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, It isn't right to take the food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Ooh. So the disciples take notice now. This woman is starting to cause a scene. And the disciples are presumably embarrassed by this breach of social etiquette. And they tell Jesus, send her away. So Jesus turns to her and speaks directly, saying he's only been sent to help Israel's lost sheep. So what do we make of that? Now you're going to hear this regularly from those of us preaching here because it's so important to the very core of the biblical story. Beginning with the very first patriarch of Israel, Abraham, The nation of Israel was called by God to be God's people, to be a blessing for the whole world. You can look it up in Genesis chapter 12. But in the wake of the fall and in the broken world that followed, the Hebrews were going to be the nation that would model what it was like to live as God intended. Now, there's so many ways in which this doesn't happen. If you read the rest of the New Testament, it is there. But the scriptures are very clear that if any rescue from this brokenness was going to come, it was going to come out of the people that God had called his own. So Jesus is saying, I wasn't sent for you, unnamed Canaanite woman. I was sent to Israel to help them. That's where we are in the story, he says. The thing is, is that the comment is actually a little bit out of left field. Despite their being in Gentile territory, there is nothing about this woman that would actually single her out as a Canaanite. Jews lived outside of the borders as well. She talks like a Hebrew would, and the disciples sure haven't said anything about Canaanite origins like one might expect, since the Canaanites are considered by the Jews, as Jesus says, dogs. And not just like the fluffy, button-nosed, friendly pets that you're thinking about right now but like wild dogs, flea-bitten, mangy, survival of the fittest carnivores. Of all of the Gentiles, including their Roman oppressors, the Canaanites were considered the most barbaric. If there's anything about her that would prompt this from everyone else, why is it that Jesus brings it up? Since we find out he's right, it's almost as if Jesus wants her honesty. She's already named Jesus as the son of David, as in he's been named the Messiah, which is weird because it's coming from a Canaanite and not even the disciples have really gone there yet in Matthew. So despite such a bold claim from this woman, she obviously finds him for a reason. She's still not yet been honest about who she is. And how often do we do that, right? I mean, think about Whatever prayer life that you have, how often do we try to speak to God while also holding back something of ourselves? If we just say the right password, we think that God is going to be fooled and give us the thing that we want, right? But God wants us. He doesn't just want some part of us, but all of us, in our totality. And one of those things is about being honest about the reality of how things are, of who we are and whose we are. And this woman is trying to be someone that she's not in order to get what she wants. Sometimes we do things in our desperation that we haven't really thought all the way through, like trying to deceive or bargain with God. So the woman pleads again and Jesus responds, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replies, that's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath the master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. This woman is spicy. (laughs) You can almost see the shift in her demeanor at Jesus's comment. It's as if to say, okay, you want honesty, I'll give you honesty. All pretense has now disappeared. And she shows Jesus that she gets it. She doesn't care about her social status if it means that her daughter gets the help, however that is, that she knows that Jesus can offer. Sure, I'm a dog to you, she says, but even dogs get scraps too. Again, Israel's meant to usher in blessing to the whole world. This is well established at this point. This is not news to anybody. Remember, Genesis chapter 12. That's a long time ago for Israel. It just hasn't been practiced very well. But somehow this woman, this Canaanite enemy, this dog, has it figured out. She gets that she's supposed to benefit from this Messiah somehow. And she's calling it in. Now, it's not technically time for the Gentiles to be included yet, but she doesn't care. God can move up his timetable. And Jesus agrees. What great faith, he exclaims, and he heals her daughter. So last week, Pastor Diane began this new sermon series that we're in for these weeks of Lent. Now, if you don't remember, Lent is a time when followers of Jesus choose to intentionally lay down some sort of distraction or bad habit or other obstacle to our growth as followers of Jesus. But then, after laying it down, we're also intended to pick up something in its place, a new habit or practice or pattern in order to become more like Jesus. Lent is a time when we ask God to remove things that don't simply belong in our lives and then to replace them with something that pleases God, that maybe blesses our neighbors, or simply allows us to be more like the person God intends us to be. It's meant to be a time of a intentional, self-aware, God-initiated transformation, a renewing of our minds, as Paul says in the book of Romans. Now our series is following this passage in Paul's letter to the church in the Turkish region of Galatia where Paul first describes a list of attitudes and behaviors that are very much reflective of the brokenness of our world and then lists nine attitudes and postures that are reflective of who God is and how God intends us to live. But these attitudes and postures are things that God must transform in us. And so Paul calls them the fruits of God's Spirit. We are to be like this, says Paul, not like that. So this is the passage. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, uh, uh, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, Anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. And today we're talking about gentleness and kindness. Which I suppose would lead you to wonder why on earth I chose this particular passage. Nothing about Jesus' behavior in this text seems particularly kind or gentle, does it? I mean, he's the role model we're watching here, right? So how on earth is what he just did either kind or gentle? The first thing we should do is actually ask what either of those two words mean. And I'll be honest, the first thing I think of when I hear the word kindness is a simple little phrase that harkens back to the days of old, to a fallen hero of Friday night entertainment called Blockbuster. I bet you know it. Be kind. Rewind. There it is. Um, If you've never heard that phrase before, it's probably worth a Google because you can do that now on the device that replaced MapQuest. Anyway, there it is, some of you are picking that up just now. Anyway, the two are sort of like two sides of the same coin. Kindness is a disposition, the posture of a person towards others. To be kind is to extend a positive attitude in one's actions towards others, an attitude that seeks their welfare. And gentleness is the way, or is one way that one can go about that action, a sort of light touch that is sensitive to the other person in an effort to preserve their welfare, to keep them from harm. So if that's the this, gentleness and kindness are the this, what's the not that? I think the easy answer for that is outrage. Outrage is something for which uh, we should be very familiar in today's world. In this time of great cultural upheaval, outrage is fast becoming our culture's default response. See, outrage is a really great way to get our way. And in a time when the good of an individual is considered the highest priority for us not to get our way is absolutely unacceptable. And I know that we all can think of examples of this, but I think we need not look any further than a simple name. Karen. We've all heard of Karens, right? Now, I'm not talking about our most excellent bass player, okay? I need to make that very clear. In our culture, a Karen is someone who is preoccupied with what he or she wants, and yes, they can be either gender, that they will play any power move that they can get what they want. So the stereotype goes, right? Take me to your manager, as it were. Rather than being gentle or kind, outrage is easier. Simply giving unrestrained liberty to our anger or frustration over not getting what we want. We hear about such aggression from everyone on social media. We see it in the way that people drive. We see it in so many situations involving any kind of disagreement. We see it in this thing called cancel culture, where we see active dismissing of imperfect people by other imperfect people who set out to actively harm someone through their reputation or their livelihood because of a differing viewpoint or because of a mistake. Side note here, in case the whole world wasn't confusing enough, cancel culture is not about natural consequences of toxic action even though such things are actually claimed by many. But there's a very fuzzy line between the two. What's more, outrage doesn't actually have to be visible. It can be passive-aggressive, too, in the way that we sometimes withhold gentleness or kindness from another person. We have gotten very good at ghosting people in texts and calls, at giving people the silent treatment, at backhanded compliments to people at work. Like, instead of calling somebody stupid, we say things like, wisdom has been chasing you, but you've always been faster. <laughs> I've wanted to say that a time or two, I'm not going to lie. We have bought into the lie that outrage will change things for the better. The thing is that bad fruit only produces more bad fruit. And that's what a stereotype does too, right? It makes bad people those people over there. The ones who are not me. I am immune to such things. But what if we're all Karens? We see this sort of outrage everywhere from every place on the political spectrum, from every faith, from every ethnicity, from every culture. We are all prone to outrage. I chose this passage because of its contrasts. While Jesus does ignore the woman at first, it strikes me that this is what the disciples, and honestly everyone else, would have expected of him. And sure enough, this escalating scene that this woman makes prompts them to ask the woman, ask Jesus to send her away. The, Je- the disciples take Jesus' per- uh, let me say it again. The disciples take Jesus's silence as permission to treat this woman unkindly. Let me say that again. Even after everything they had already seen, including Jesus healing the poor, the lame, the sick, the outcast, even the servant of the Roman centurion from a distance, the disciples take Jesus' silence to this woman as permission to be unkind to her in the midst of their discomfort. Let that sink in. Remember that list from Galatians 5? Here's that list of the fruits of what Paul calls the sinful nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, here it comes. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Anything on that list sound like anything that just happened? And these are Jesus' disciples. And look around our world, we are no better it's just outrage revisited, buying into the stereotypes and the unspoken heuristics of our culture. But this woman is remarkable. It's almost as if Jesus makes space for this little exchange, knowing that the woman can handle and even prove herself, not for her sake, but for the sake of the disciples and the gospel writer's audience. Jesus isn't just here for Israel. Jesus is God-made human, right? God loves the entirety of creation. I think that this is the most gentle way that Jesus could think of to teach his disciples, again, that their kindness matters. Because you never know where you're going to find faith. This woman isn't yelling in outrage. She's yelling in desperation, But the disciples, who seem a whole lot quieter, they're the ones with the outrage. Outrage at history, outrage at their own nation's oppression, fueled by their exhaustion of yet another run-in with the religious authorities that forced them to leave their nation. But that only puts them in this mindset to now aim all of that outrage at her, outrage at who she is, a woman and a pagan and a Canaanite dog, outrage at the disruption of their little vacation, Outrage at her audacity. And all of this blinds the disciples from what Jesus has been teaching them all along. That Jesus is here to bless the broken, the lost, the meek, the downtrodden. All those people they heard about in the Sermon on the Mount, not 10 chapters earlier. They don't see this woman's desperation and pain. They only see their own inconvenience. Now, rather than correcting them bluntly, because bluntness will only ramp up anxiety and outrage, Jesus' gentleness lets this woman show them that kindness towards others is the way of the kingdom, no matter where they are. Gentleness and kindness are meant to be a posture of healing in a broken world. And even this story is part of a larger passage. Just after this, Jesus again begins attracting all these crowds and he asks his disciples to feed them. This time to a crowd of 4,000 families. Now, if that number sounds wrong, it's because it's several chapters earlier that Jesus had already fed 5,000 families back in Galilee. But these 4,000 families are not Israelites, they are Gentiles. Jesus could not resist letting the kingdom of God break in before it was technically supposed to. It's in these stories we get this foreshadowing of God's vision for a healed world. Now hopefully you're picking up that this is actually the way that we could approach every fruit of the Spirit. It's not actually fruits of the Spirit, plural. It's the fruit of the Spirit, singular. All of these are intertwined and part of the same transformation of a person out of our brokenness and into the wholeness that comes from becoming more and more like God in our character. They go together. Your gentleness must flow from a posture of kindness. Your joy must come from goodness. Your self-control must contribute to a life of faithfulness. None of these traits are isolated in their own little containers They are products of one's overall posture. Are we people of the kingdoms of this world? Or are we people of the kingdom of God? Because each one of those produces different fruit. Paul writes in Colossians 3, if you were raised with Christ, look for the things that are above where Christ is sitting at God's right side. Think about the things above and not the things on earth. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also be revealed with him in glory. So put to death the parts of your life that belong to the earth, such as sexual immorality, moral corruption, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. The wrath of God is coming upon disobedient people because of these things. You used to live this way when you were alive to these things, but now... Set aside these things such as anger, rage, malice, slander, and obscene language. Sounds an awful lot like outrage. Don't lie to each other. Take off the old human nature with its practices and put on the new nature. This, not that. Which is renewed in knowledge by conforming to the image of the one who created it. In this image, there is neither Greek, nor Jew, nor Canaanite circumcised or uncircumcised barbarian Scythian slave or free but Christ is all things and in all people therefore as Christ as God's choice holy and loved put on compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience be tolerant of each other and if someone has a complaint against anyone forgive each other as the Lord forgave you so also forgive each other and over all these things put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. The peace of Christ must control your hearts, a peace into which you were called in one body. Would you pray with me? God, we are prone to wander. We are prone to give in to our culture's demands, Our culture's way of doing things, our culture's outrage. It's so easy. Sometimes it even seems like the right way to go. God, help us to be kind and gentle people. Help us to turn the other cheek when such things are necessary. Help us to treat others with kindness. Help us to be gentle with those around us. We don't know what kind of pain their outrage comes from. Lord, transform us from the inside so that we can be your light to a broken world. In your name we pray together. Amen.